are in a series right now in the Gospel of John, so if you want to turn uh, to a phone app uh, or a Bible and join us in John 13, feel free to do that, but this will all be on screen here in just a second. Uh, To remind you of where we are in the Gospel, we are about halfway through. Uh, It is Thursday night of Holy Week. It's the uh, the night before, actually just hours before, Jesus is going to be arrested uh, and eventually put on trial, flogged, and crucified. And so um, if you're new to all this stuff, uh, the, the gospel writers of the New Testament uh, emphasize this part of Jesus' life um, over and against, not really against, but over uh, in some ways the first three years of his life, which they kind of go through a little bit more quickly, um, and they spend most of the time on the, uh, the passion, which is Latin for suffering, this kind of uh, final event of Jesus' uh, redemptive actions when he dies for the sins of the world and rises again to overwhelm death. And so we are um, in some ways, in the throes of that, although we're still on the front end of it. Um, we, this is um, the, the, the Last Supper, basically, narrative uh, of, of John. So, uh, part two of three, kind of, of John's Last Supper narrative, uh, where he um, includes a section on washing feet, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three gospel writers, don't. And so, it's kind of uh, interesting to spend some time uh, looking at that last week. And today, we'll look at Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, who's going to betray him. And then next week, we'll wrap up with some things from Peter, uh, which I'll, we'll talk about uh, in a week. So just to kind of get your bearings. Uh, we're kind of jumping right in with verse 18 today. Um, and so if you weren't here last week, verse 17 uh, kind of wrapped up with Jesus saying to uh, Peter and uh, the, the 12, really the 11 minus Judas, but we'll explain that in a minute, um, that you are clean. And so uh, to whatever degree we understand the disciples being Christian uh, before Jesus dies and rises again and establishes the New Testament and all of that stuff, not to mince words and, and overanalyze, but uh, to whatever degree we understand that, uh, Peter is that. Uh, Jesus has called these men to himself by grace, not based on what they've done, not their performance or obedience or their amazingness, but just because he loves them. And so for Jesus to say you are clean as he's, as he's washing their feet, he means this metaphorically, uh, you are clean of your sins. You are being announced mine and uh, my sons. Uh, you are being announced uh, okay and justified uh, because of what I'm about to do on the cross. And so picking right up from, wh- from that basically then, uh, verse 18 um, ensues. And so let's just read this in full here to begin. We'll come back and give some more context before diving in. All right, verse 18. Jesus still speaking. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, uh, buy, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. 
So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. All right, so um, I know I barely need to say this, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, This is a very dark passage. Uh, This is a dark moment in the life of Christ and in the greater biblical story. Uh, And it's about to get darker, but this, you could say, is uh, the first darkness that precedes the black hole of his crucifixion. Uh, John, in fact, you see here in the last verse, he ends this section with the simple phrase, and it was night. Uh, Not because he's interested in what time it is, but because he's a theologian. Uh, Jesus, the light of the world, was beginning to be surrounded by the night, by the darkness for us in love. That's what that verse means. Uh, And so, um, as you might expect by now, uh, because we've been doing this every week since the beginning of, of this series, we're seeing that love break into the earlier stories as well. It's almost like it just can't help it. Uh, the, the love that is exemplified perfectly on the cross when Jesus dies for our sins breaks into the earlier parts of the Bible. Not just the earlier parts of the Gospels, but the whole Testament as well. It breaks into it because all of it that is somehow preparing the way for it uh, to set the stage for it in many and various ways. And so this story is actually one of those stories, even though we're right on the cusp of Jesus being arrested and dying, uh, it still serves a forward-looking uh, dimension to it, a gospel-expressing uh, dimension to it, uh, though it will be passed up with more clarity in uh, the coming sentences and paragraphs and verses and chapters and weeks uh, and months as we continue to look at it. All right? So uh, what I want to do today is kind of outline the sermon with these three words, uh, Judas, love, and betrayal. It's kind of summative of I think a lot of things theologically going on here, and so um, if you'd like to follow along, just uh, that's where we're going to be going. So let's start with Judas. Uh, This, again, is uh, John's Judas narrative, basically. Uh, If if you don't know, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts of the New Testament, all talk about Judas in different ways, um, but they do emphasize different things, and John has some points of emphasis that are very interesting. So we'll start with him. Uh, Judas, everyone's uh, favorite disciple, uh, maybe not really, but uh, he, so he is um, one of the 12 I mentioned before that Jesus calls to himself away from their old lives. And if you've read the, uh, the calling narratives of how Jesus calls people to himself, it's very, uh, seems very sporadic and kind of random, but he like walks by lakes and sees fishermen out there and says, uh, drop your nets, come follow me. Uh, he calls people away from their families and their identities and again, their, their jobs as they're in the act of working. And And I don't think that's a coincidence uh, because so much of Jesus' mission would be exemplified by grace. That is, by him working, not by us working. Uh, By him working and by us resting. So that it's much more accurate to say that Jesus calls us away from our work rather than to work. Um, But that's kind of a digression. Uh, But but Judas, though, is one of these 12 who is here at this point in his life. He is becoming the betrayer. He's playing the role of, of the betrayer, the one who was about to go and disclose Jesus' location to the Jews who want to arrest him and kill him. Uh, so it's about to happen, and we actually see it beginning to happen here uh, in, uh, in today's passage. Also remember, since it's been a few weeks uh, since this came up, um, the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus primarily for two reasons. One, Jesus is claiming to be God, and so he's self-deifying, and, and to them that's blasphemy. They don't believe he is God, actually, and so they want to kill him because he's claiming to be God. Uh, but second, also, Jesus is breaking their law. 
uh, he's not keeping the Sabbath. He is not condemning uh, adulterers, but instead forgiving them. Uh, he's replacing washing rituals with himself. The, the list goes on and on. He's breaking with the law over and over again, which becomes this problem uh, for them. It's very problematic, you know, theologically, but also offensive to them, uh, to law keepers who are thinking that there's something by way of their obedience and by way of their law keeping. So, so Jesus is over and over again then showing and saying, claiming to save people apart from the law, uh, even the laws of the Bible. Uh, pointing people to himself rather than to them. He is altogether different. He's a new kind of mediator, a uh, new kind of uh, a savior. All this is part of God's grand genius design. All right, so, but probably the biggest thing uh, to see, though, going back to John 13, a little bit more proper here, is uh, especially in John's account, um, has to do with context and the fact that Jesus had just got done washing the disciples' feet which included Judas's, all right? So he didn't skip over Judas. Uh, he washed his feet of all the grime and dust and animal excrement and everything else that was normally caking the feet of people who walked around in sandals all day. Um, and not just that, but he um, offers him bread, knowing full well he's about to betray him, offers him bread dipped in the wine, which those two things respectively were going to become to represent his body and blood, and which was about to be, his blood, which was about to be shed on the cross for the sins of the world. And so this is like the definition of patience, of, God's, of divine patience. Uh, you know, elsewhere the Bible says God is slow to become angry. He is a patient God with us. Uh, Jesus is exuding this. He's showing this physically uh, as, as God's son in the flesh. He's being patient and he is also loving his enemies. Uh, th- this idea that strikes so hard, close to the heart of the gospel, um, you know, if you've ever wrestled with that uh, idea, you're not alone, first of all, but uh, if you've been skeptical of the fact that God loves his arch enemies, that that is what the Christian God is. There's many things we could, you know, summarize in terms of like describing who, what the Christian God is like, but that is such a big part of it, that God loves his arch enemies, even to the point of taking on or taking their bullets and taking on their problems. Um, but if that's ever been a problem, you know, uh, uh, for you, then I, I let this story gently correct you. Um, and we are the enemies as well, not just like objectively speaking, though that's part of it, but, you know, subjectively, we, we, are, um, we are the enemies who have been shown kindness. That's really what you're seeing here, I think, in this passage. And also, it's not just a passing circumstantial thing, but this is all part of the plan. Like when you see in verse 18 here uh, on the top of the slide, when Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen, he's in part referring to Judas, which is to say, I know I've chosen someone who would become my friend, but who would then turn on me. And that I would still love that person to the end in order to make a point. Well, one, because I truly do love him, but, and also to make a theological point, that point being, I came for devils. Not for actual fallen angels, but devil-like human beings. Not all of which will be saved, because not all of which will receive me, but my active service toward Judas in washing his feet and offering him bread shows that no one is out of reach. That's what this is saying. No matter how far uh, from Jesus they might seem, uh, no one is out of reach. 
Jesus' love is much bigger than we think it is. I, I think that when you, um, I know a lot of you can probably empathize with this. If you can't yet, that's okay. Maybe you will. Hopefully you will soon. You probably will if you keep reading scripture. Um, is that God's love is always bigger. It's more um, intrusive in a good way. Is that a good thing? It's a good thing. Uh, but it's, it's more like um, kicking down the doors of your heart. You know, it's more uh, offensive. It's more unfair. Uh, it's more shocking than we think it is. And, and this, this action towards Judas is just not something that normal people do, this type of arch enemy love. Um, and so I, my, my encouragement for you all is when you read the Judas narratives in the Bible is see yourself in him and see him in yourself. Um, as hard as that might be. Uh, don't be like the religious man in Luke 18, if you don't remember the story, the, the Pharisee, the, the religious man who in Luke 18 prayed to God, God, thank you that I am not like this bad person over here, but thank you that I've done so, so many good things for you. Uh, you, you know, in, in other words, don't read the Judas narratives and say, God, thank you that I'm not like Judas. Uh, that would be to miss the point entirely. It, it would be uh, to, to take up the mantle as a, a moralist, as a legalist. It would be to take up the mantle as a God must grade on the curve uh, kind of idea, and it would, it would actually uh, lead you uh, to miss the gospel. Because we too have betrayed friends. We, we too have loved money. Maybe we have lived double lives uh, at some point in our life. Maybe currently you are in the room today, and all of us have just flat out sinned, uh, and yet we've been loved nonetheless. That's what the Christian gospel says. We've been loved nonetheless. Um, and so Seeing ourselves in Judas then helps us to see that, but also to, I think, heed a warning here, and I think there is a warning um, for Christians, maybe especially, though if you're not a Christian yet, you can still get something from this, but um, if there was a warning, I think it would be from 1 Timothy 4.16 to borrow Paul's language there, where he says, watch to Christians, he says this to Timothy, who was a young pastor in Ephesus, uh, he says, watch your life and watch what you believe. Watch um, what you think is good Christian doctrine, and in Timothy's case, was, but he's teaching him too. He's saying, watch what you believe. Watch uh, what the Bible says very closely. Um, I mean, if there was actually a, uh, even more of a honed-in warning here, that's still kind of broad, a more particular warning, I think it would be against disillusionment. Um, and there's a lot going on here. I'm not saying this is the only thing, but I think John is helping us to see this. You know, there's a love of money lesson. You know, Judas loved money, the Bible says elsewhere. He basically worshipped it. And so that's, a that's still a, that's a warning too for all of us, Christian or not, but, um, because love of money leads, leads to all kinds of evil. But here I think you see disillusionment. I, I, um, and maybe you noticed it, but uh, do you remember in this passage what happened right before Judas fled? It says, Jesus, Jesus took the morsel of bread, dipped it in the wine, and offered it to Judas. And then right when he took it, he, he ran. And uh, now, there, I think there's a symbolic lesson uh, here, or idea here. And, and now, whether or not he was connecting these dots is actually unimportant, because John, the author, I think, is connecting the dots. And, and the dots are the relationship between the bread and the wine in Jesus' body and blood which makes Judas's flight connected to Jesus' central mission, which is dying for our sins. Um, Judas' disillusionment with Jesus is coming to a head here. It was probably already existing for a long time, but here 
Um, it's this ultimate symbol of why Jesus was going to come, to die on a cross for sins, to die a criminal's death that Judas eventually, he took and he ran and, and, and left him with. I, I don't think that's a coincidence. In fact, if you don't have any, like, any kind of like, answer to that, it's sort of left hanging and kind of odd. Uh, I don't think it's just Jesus saying, um, well, I'm going to use bread and wine to identify the person. You could have just said his name. I think there's something symbolic here uh, in terms of uh, Judas's uh, wholesale disillusionment with the kind of Savior, the kind of Messiah that Jesus was um, presenting himself as and kind of becoming in a way or, or showing himself to be. Judas, in the end, just didn't want that kind of Jesus. And so he ran. And there actually isn't another kind of Jesus, but we think there are. We, we manufacture different kinds of Jesuses. Like, if Jesus is real, then he's probably like this because I think that's what he should be. This is very natural for Christians or non-Christians to think and do. Uh, but the, the Bible, what the Bible is saying here is there actually isn't, though. Like, and, and Jesus is saying, kind of correcting and saying, but this is what I offer you, myself. And it's really all I offer, but it's not, I'm not being stingy with it. It's the only thing you actually need, ultimately, in life. And so, to circle back to us, that becomes the warning. Um, when Jesus offers us his body dipped in blood, uh, do we scoff? You know, uh, run, maybe clamor for another kind of Jesus, maybe a, a moral teacher kind of Jesus, or a political Jesus, a pacifist Jesus, a flattery Jesus, um, or, uh, you know, a Jesus that must take all our suffering away or we start to question everything, a health and wealth Jesus. Um, there's lots of different kinds of fake Jesuses, right, poser Jesuses. Um, but, but Jesus is saying, this is actually who I am. I'm in the bread. I'm in the, I, I'm in the wine. It's my body and blood. This is the only kind of me there is. Can you accept it? And so, do we or do we not? Do we eat or do we run? Do we learn the truth or stay disillusioned? Um, and ultimately, the invitation is to eat with him. It's to rest. It's to stay. Um, the Apostle Paul need, needed that lesson. Remember this in 2 Corinthians 12 where it says, God, Jesus said to him, when he's suffering, my grace is sufficient for you. It really is enough. I know it doesn't feel like it all the time. But my grace, my one-way love, me saving you from your sins, in other words. Because grace biblically is defined by not works. Uh, Romans 9 says, if grace had to do with works, it wouldn't be grace anymore. And so you can't just say grace without saying not works, like biblically speaking. Well, we might, in our own mind, fashion some false definition of it. But biblically speaking, you have to define what grace is by what it isn't. Um, and so what, Je what Jesus is saying to Paul, again, again, different passage, different kind of context, but he's saying, my grace is sufficient for you. What I do for you, what I have done, uh, really, really is enough. And um, kind of encouraging that Christians need to keep hearing that, you know? So if you're like, man, do I need to keep hearing, hearing this? I feel like, you know, maybe bummed about that. It, don't. Like, it, it's actually part of it. Like, you're, you're in good company if you need the message. But the point is, what do you do with it? Do we run or, or do, we, do we stay? Do we abandon or do we stay in the church and stay connected to Jesus? Um, those are very different, obviously. All right, so moving on then to the next section, we'll kind of like table Judas uh, for a little bit. They'll, we'll come back to him too. Um, uh, this next part in this passage that John uh, chooses to focus on is love. 
Uh, verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? All right, so a couple of things here. Uh, first, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John himself. Uh, we know that for a number of reasons because he uses this uh, phrase elsewhere uh, in, the, uh, in, in the gospel, uh, in, in context, history, different things. Um, but the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who wrote this, is basically saying, um, that's, that's me. And there, there are a few ideas as to why John refers to himself this way. Um, I think the most likely is that he omits his name out of modesty. So he's saying, um, my name isn't worthy to be written next to Jesus's. Like in this story, I'm leaning up against Jesus. I'm next to him because he's accepted me, warts and all. But in terms of like me writing this gospel, I, I, um, my name is not worthy to be included. May, may my name be forgotten and but, you know, but Jesus is remembered forever, even though we all remember John's name. Uh, but in this story, that's the idea, right? I, I think, uh, narratively. It's almost a literary device, you could, you could say. Or maybe it's also about identity. So the idea there would be, more important than my given name in my past is that I'm loved by God himself now. It's almost memoir-like. I'm loved, and that's who I am. And it's anyone's guess as to why. I'm not bragging. I'm standing in awe as well. I don't know how this could be, but Jesus loves me, uh, a sinner. And that becomes more important than, again, my name or my past or my works or my resume or anything else you might put to, like, your identity. You know, because when, like, when we say, when someone asks you guys, like, um, who are you? Uh, who are you? No, not that way. Just like, who, like, who are you? Tell me about your story. Um, a lot of times we think about our work, right? Like, well, this is what I do for a job, or this is kind of, you know, my uh, familial history and, and so forth. And those, those can all be fine things. Um, but when you put it this way, it's kind of like John is just sort of shelving that. I've actually thought about this as a parent. I have three kids. Most of you guys know this. Um, and though I mean this for all three of them, I was talking to my son especially recently about this because... I was actually just kind of caught back at how much, I know how, I'm, how much I love him, uh, and my wife, Aletha, loves him, but I was kind of actually kind of caught back at how much you all love him. Like, he, I think he was, I don't know, talking about youth group once, or talking about, like, I, we had people over, and just they were like, Emmett, we love you, you know, and, um, and we appreciate this about you, and all these things, and so I you know, I just, I think the church is really cool for that, and this is something that, you know, not just for kids, but for adults, like, we, we, we see and feel the love of God through his people, and that came up last week, actually, uh, if you weren't here for that as well. Um, but more than, you know, being a good artist or soccer player, good at math, good baker, or a good friend, whatever, like, good friend even, um, I, I want, like, as a parent, I want my kids to know this love so much that if they were to explain themselves to others, or answer that question, who are you, that they might identify themselves by how much they are loved. And that might be weird in certain contexts, like, you know, for a school assignment or something. Uh, they might feel uncomfortable doing that, but I hope they at least think it. And, and by whom are they loved? Like Jesus being the foremost lover. It really is. Like, I know a lot of you guys know this. I know that. But you, none of us know it enough. None of us know it as much as we can. 
And um, th- this is part of the point. And it, it, it's not just a thing. It's, you know, and not to minimize it, but it's also kind of strategic, you know. It's, it's like if you, if you wrestle with anxiety or depression or sin or, um, have I covered all the bases yet? I pretty much everyone in the room, I think. Uh, I know for me. Um, but like, or, or if you have critics, you know, if you have enemies, like knowing whose you are, knowing you're okay, you're just loved, and that's, that's all you need uh, is actually pretty deflective in, in a good way too. That's almost another, another thing I won't go into. Um, you guys see in the movie Spanglish? Uh, it's an old movie. It's, it's, been a, it's probably, what, 20 years old now? I don't know. Um, it, it's an Adam Sandler movie. One of his more like um, drama, melancholic type movies, so not, not like Waterboy Adam Sandler or Happy Gilmore type Sandler, but um, wh- whereas at the end, there's actually more of a movie between a mother and a daughter, and this da- daughter um, ends the movie with a monologue, and she is applying to colleges, and she, uh, it's sort of like her kind of like speaking the, the, the um, essay uh, if you've seen it or haven't seen it. But she says, a- actually, to the college, like, I would love to go to school uh, at your school, but I don't really care, actually, like, if you accept me or not. I don't, I'm not really going to be affected by it, ultimately, because I know whose I am. Like, ultimately, my identity lies squarely in one fact, and it's just this. I am my mother's daughter, period. And she, and so it's a real, that's the whole movie just kind of drops, you know, right there. And it's uh Wonderful, beautiful, climactic, but it's just a movie. Like, this is real. You know, who are you? Like, you guys belong to someone if you're a Christian. If you're not yet, you can. God is gathering people in every day. Maybe that's you today. But if you're his, the good news here is you're not different from John. Like, it's not like Jesus didn't love the other disciples. It's not like he's at this, like, oh, what did he do to get that special spot next to his, next to his, he had nothing. How do you get to lean against Jesus? He didn't do anything, you know? It's like he's loved. Uh, what Jesus is about to do allows people to lean up against him. Uh, that's, that's the point. Um, this, this meal, this almost picnic, you know, this like casual hanging out with God himself in the flesh, that's our reality. We get that. We have it now. And we'll get it in the flesh uh, face-to-face in, in the future. All right, anyway, uh, let me move to the second part of this. Uh, the other side of the coin kind of is um, what I love about this, you know, kind of uh, Johannan or John-like angle on, on this story uh, is that you get a feel uh, for what it must have been like for the disciples uh, other than Judas for Jesus to kind of let the betrayal thing hang out there in, in the room for a minute. So it, it, it's one sense it's almost kind of funny. I don't think they were, they were laughing I don't know why I laugh at this. I giggle more. But like whenever, you know, Peter's like there and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And he doesn't say right away. He kind of lets it hang. I don't know if it's five seconds or 60 seconds or we don't know. It doesn't really matter. But he lets it hang out there. And Peter's like, you know, John, ask him. You know, like kind of nudging because Peter's like here and John's here and Jesus is here. And so um, Peter's like, ask him who he's talking about. And, the, you know, so probably this moment of, and it says here that they ask each other. They don't know. They're uncertain. So Judas is playing the role uh, of a real disciple pretty well. That's really important to see too. Judas looks just like the others. And he's a, he's a fake disciple, a fake Christian. So uh, that's another, to go back to what I was talking before, like the warning here. I'm not going to delve back into that. But they don't know. And, um, but I think what John gives you uh, is 
a perspective on the Judas narrative from the other disciples that, again, the synoptics may be a little more quiet on. But so we talked about Judas. But think about Peter. Uh, Think about the other 11 for a, a minute and think about their story and how they respond to all of this. Think about how much relief did they experience when they found out it wasn't them. See, that's what John helps us to see. It's like, relief, relief is like, you know, and they're not pristine saints here. The other 11 in the room aren't perfect. They're normal, sinful human beings like us. We have to understand, understand that too for us to feel the relief. But they had very likely betrayed others in life before. I mean, who hasn't betrayed somebody before? Um, who may have had thoughts about leaving Jesus at some point. You know, thinking, was this all worth it? Uh, they, they maybe struggled with commitment or loyalty. Uh, they were certainly harboring secret sins because, again, who doesn't? But now Jesus effectively says, uh, it's not you to the other 11. By identifying Judas, they're saying, it's not you all. You're okay. Satan will never possess you. You are mine. You are loved. And no one can ever snatch you out of my hand. See, that's the solace that we get. All of us in the room who are Christians, we get that solace as well. And that's one point where we are different from Judas, right? Or there's still a warning to consider like before, but just saying to those of us who are truly saved, um, this is what the gospel feels like. So we talk about what the gospel is and what grace is, but what does grace feel like when we hear it? It feels like relief. That's one of the principal feelings we should get. Uh, or, you know, not that we have to every time to understand it, but just saying grace feels like relief. The gospel feels like a deep sigh of, of relief, a deep breath of fresh air. Um, and it, but it comes with a question. We, we don't deserve to be left off the hook, again, uh, or let off the hook. It's, it's like, again, Peter's not better than Judas. John's not better like morally speaking, they're not better. And so how does this whole thing transpire and take place? How are we, let, how are we like let off the hook? And that's another story, but to that we're going to turn now in, um, in this third and final section, which is about um, betrayal. And I forgot all my slides here, but there you go. All right, so <clears throat> betrayal. Let me read this again uh, where it says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Quoting from Psalm 41.9, an Old Testament passage. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Okay, so lots going on here. Um, What's interesting about this uh, uh, to me is that Jesus, by his actions, uh, is like forcibly fulfilling scripture. Do you guys notice this? Like forcibly, not in a, like a bad way or a manipulative way. Like he can't. He, he wrote the thing. He can do with it what he wants. Um, but for, by forcibly, I mean he ensures that the Old Testament be replayed out, completed, and fulfilled by here giving bread to a friend betrayer. Because he could have just said with his words, Judas is the guy, and then he would leave. But he says, wait, like before you go, basically, here's some bread forcing the fulfillment of Psalm 41.9 into existence. It's pretty cool, isn't it? This kind of tells you a lot about how Jesus relates to the Old Testament, how he's um, 
the point of it all, how he's trying to, re, the fancy word is recapitulate or kind of relive it out, put it back on display. And so by quoting from Psalm 41, which is a Psalm of David written a thousand years before this time, um, he's kind of like commandeering it. He's uh, appropriating it. He's taking it on uh, for himself. He's saying, I am the new betrayed king. You know of David, but what's more important is that I am his son. And not just genealogically, but theologically. What he went through, I'm going through at a higher level. And so, therefore, all the psalms that he wrote are about me. All the psalms David wrote about suffering are actually psalms about my suffering. They're actually my words. They're actually about me. It's not just like about him, but they're actually be actually his words. They're his songbook. And so that's what's helpful then about all of this to understand is that the Psalms in their entirety, not just like a, a, a verse here and there, but the Psalms in their entirety are Jesus's prayer book or Jesus's songbook. And when parts of Psalms are quoted, like Psalm 41, they're actually an invitation for us into reading the whole of the Psalm in context to see how maybe other parts of that psalm are also appropriate and also help understand what's going on in this New Testament story that they're being referenced in. So, have you guys ever um, uh, read Psalm 22 before? Or maybe in the, in the New Testament where Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22.1, which is another psalm of David, but if you keep reading in Psalm 22, there's all these other things in that psalm that are direct references to the crucifixion. Um, Jesus isn't mentioning them directly, but he clearly means to do that. Like he's not saying it's just verse one that I'm kind of like re-mentioning here as though it kind of applies to my situation. He's saying Psalm 22 in its entirety is about me. All of the words of Psalm 22 are my words. All of the words of suffering. And so what I want to do then is just to go back to this question of how are we let off the hook? How can we be saved? How can God be just and a savior? Uh, one who is patient, who looks over our sin and forgets it, uh, like Peter was talking uh, about before, before that last song. Um, how can that be? And uh, the answer is all of this stuff. The answer is Jesus' rejection. The answer is his death. And the black hole of that's coming, the, the initial night of it here with this betrayal is just a doorway into the broader thing that Jesus does in order to accomplish our salvation. Or to put it more simply, it's his death on a cross. It's his substitutionary atonement, dying in our place that makes all of that possible. Like, so, I mean, if, this is the, if these are the questions, like, how does all of Psalm 41 point us to Jesus? Or this bottom thing, how does Jesus save us from our betrayal? so our sins are not counted against us, again, the answer is, is the cross. In Psalm 41, if verse 9 is a window, um, let me just walk us, let me just take us through that window for a minute. Not reading the whole thing, but here's like, basically, if we ask the question, how is Psalm 41 connected with Jesus' sufferings? It is in these ways. I have five things. One, it tells us that he is a man of sorrows who is betrayed by a really, really good friend. From verse 9. Uh, second, his enemies are imagining the worst for him. Verse 7. This is what happened to Jesus on the cross for you and me. Uh, third, he is the second David who is having a deadly thing poured out on him. From verse 8. That deadly thing being the wrath of God or our sin, death itself, punishment, pain. 
um, separation from God even is being experienced, exile from him on the cross in a way, all that stuff and more. A deadly things poured out. To whatever degree it was on David, it's now in, a, in an exemplified, heightened way happening on Jesus or about to be. Uh, fourth, he is even the one uh, who becomes the sinner. Though he knew no sin, uh, he becomes it on the cross uh, that we might become clean. So whenever it says in verse 4, um, David says, Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Th- th- those two are actually Jesus' words. Though he never sins, uh, the, the New Testament says he becomes sin. So the confessional psalms are even in a way a predictive of Jesus on the cross becoming like a common criminal, uh, crying out for deliverance uh, in, in our place. Um, Chad Bird says about Psalm 41, uh, I don't have this on screen, but I'll just read it quick. Uh, in Psalm 41, Jesus prays, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. The, Jesus prays that. Then he says, uh, the righteous one who became our unrighteousness. To say it more accurately, we and David pray in the voice of Jesus for this psalm. Like all other psalms, um, this psalm, like all other psalms, belong to Jesus. They, they are his possession. There's no such thing as a passage of scripture in the Old Testament that does not belong to Jesus somehow. It might not always be easy to see, but every single word, every, every, every part of it exists for his purpose. Uh, even these parts of the Psalms um, where David cries out in anguish uh, for being weighed down by his sin. Uh, the gospel in that is we have that too. We cry out to God for, for our sin. The answer though uh, of God is I will become that. I will send my son to become the one who is anguished by your sin on the cross so you're relieved. Uh, he takes, he's, he's a bullet taker, essentially, Jesus is. Fulfilling scriptures, but literally in history, becoming the one uh, who becomes our sin on the cross. Yes, it's that invasive. Yes, it's that unfair. Yes, it's that dark and offensive. But yes, it's that substitutionary. In fact, anything less than that would not be true substitution. Anything less would not be true substitution. And then through all of this, uh, fifth and final, through all of this, he is, Jesus is the one who considers the poor. So Psalm 41 begins with, blessed is the one who considers the poor, which I think is really cool because in today's passage in John 13, uh, Jesus says, or there's this mention of Jesus talking to Judas, right? And the disciples are like, maybe he's saying to, to Jesus, you should give something to the poor. Remember that? These aren't coincidences. But the idea here is that Jesus is the blessed one. Jesus is ultimately the one who gives to the poor. And so even though Jesus isn't telling Judas in John 13 to go give to the poor, in a sense he kind of is. When Jesus says, go and betray me quickly, expedite my crucifixion, Jesus in that moment is ensuring that the greatest gift of all would be given to spiritually poor people like us when he dies in our place. Salvation. But again, the way he did this was through his own sufferings. Look what 2 Corinthians 8, 9 uh, says, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Um, this is the Apostle Paul's sort of uh, putting into words, this is, a, this is a, a gospel encouragement for Christians, but also if you're not a Christian yet, it's the same message. Um, some of you have received this, maybe some of you haven't, but it's the same gospel. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor on the cross. He became wretched. He became a sinner on the cross, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you see the the substitutionary idea there? Though he was rich, he became poor, like us spiritually poor people, so that we might sort of have the wealth of his grace. We may become rich in the fact that we're loved. Rich in the fact that we enemies have a place at his table. Rich in the fact that that's the only thing that matters now is that we have this dipped bread that's given to us as a gift. Um, Not the Ten Commandments on two stone-cold tablets that could never be kept by anybody, but instead bread and wine. And that's That's the wealth now the Bible talks about. Ephesians 1, we have the riches of his grace poured out on us. So speaking in metaphorical terms, uh, the Son of God became a poor man, physically, but especially spiritually, uh, for for you and me. That's what God, that's that's kind of the final gospel word here, Uh, kind of through the lens of David's story, through the lens of Psalm 41, through the lens of John 13, All three of those sections of Scripture are pointing ahead to the cross. All of them in different ways are about Jesus' betrayal and sufferings and hardships and being left for dead uh, like the scum of the earth. That's what God went through willingly because he loved us. Uh, But that's what he went through for you and me. So how are we saved? How are we let off the hook? How can we lean against Jesus' breast? How can we dine with the Son of God? How can we truly have our feet washed? How can we be declared clean? None of these questions are answered apart from the cross. It's impossible. There is no answer, logical, theological, philosophical, or otherwise. The answer, according to the Bible, God's word, is he wants us to know, is I've done it all. My son is the key. He is the answer. This little night-like betrayal in John 13 is going to be fanned into a firestorm in just a few hours when I'm betrayed at the highest level on a cross for our sins. And so, if you believe then in Jesus, if you believe, you are saved. Not those who work for him, but those who believe in him, those who have faith in him, are the ones who are, who are made clean and saved. Let, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, this passage, the richness of it, uh, how it ties the old to the new, uh, the prophetic psalms and the songs of the Old Testament of David, how it ties those things in as well, even helping us to understand a darker Judas narrative uh, and how they're all about the cross. Um, everything is either an indirect pointer or an explicit uh, shouter and shower uh, of the truth of the fact that God came to get bloody for us. And that's what he offers us. Um, There is no other kind of Jesus. There's no other kind of God's mission. Uh, That is the MO of the creator. Um, Help us to receive it with faith as hard as it might be, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's just the best thing we've ever heard, and we're receiving it for the first time today. God, but that is doctrine. 
Uh, At the end of the day, doctrine, Christian doctrine, Christian theology is Christ crucified and nothing else. Uh, Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, your word says, God, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, Jesus, that was actually your word to us as well. Uh, through it, we see it here in John 13. You chose to know nothing before Judas, nothing before the disciples, except your impending doom. Uh, for some, that, that, that is the, the offense that leads to rejecting you, and for some, it becomes uh, the, the very thing that draws us in um, to become sons and daughters of the king, to be reclassified from arch enemy. Uh, to a son and daughter of, of the king. And so we uh, thank you for that today. In Christ we pray it all. Amen.